open up there to the book of Leviticus. That's exciting. We'll continue here in chapter 19, and we'll take all 37 verses I know. We will do it. Father, we thank you and praise you for this evening, Lord. And as we open up your word, we need you, Holy Spirit, to illuminate your truths here. May the words said, the things we hear, may, Lord, it be just of you and not of me or anything else. But no distractions, no nothing to be able to hear from you. Uh, speak to each and individual heart here in the presence of this place or those listening online or those listening later on. I pray you would just, as by, by the power of your spirit, Spirit, move in a mighty way. We thank you for your presence here in this place. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. The law of God reveals something very important to us, and that is the love of God. The law of God reveals to you and I the love of God. God is a God of love, and he desires his people to live lives that reflect this attribute, this characteristic in our lives. The love of God should be an attribute, a characteristic in our life, especially if you've been walking with him as a believer, as a child of God, it should be clear to us as we spend time talking to you or even watching you from a distance there's something about you and I of the characteristic or attribute of the love of God pouring from our lives that touches the lives of other people it's the fruit of the spirit that people are able to pluck from your life and my life just by being in the presence of the people. There should be something that's from your life that is good and right. It's the love of God that's coming from you. If you're not there yet, hold on. Just keep following the Lord. Keep seeking the Lord. Keep going in deeper into the things of God, talking and developing that prayer life and, that, and being in the Word of God because eventually that fruit of love, the love of God, the agape love will come from your life and people will will see it and know it, just sense it coming from your life. It's only a matter of time. Now, he desires for us to be people who love each other. When God established the nation of Israel, he laid down regulations or boundaries for that society that he was taking out of Egypt, bringing them across the promise or the, the desert into the promised land, he needed to set boundaries on his people so that his people do not get filtered in or mingled into a society that would corrupt them and cause tremendous problems and cause them to worship false idols and to worship and follow the flesh. The things that they were dealing with in Egypt, God preserved them. Now he's taking them into the promised land. The Canaanites were even more wicked and, and worshipped prostit temple prostitutes. It was just goes, it goes uh, Moloch and, and just burning babies on this hot iron. I mean, it just, it got wicked. And, and he says his people needed to have boundaries. See, they had to do that. We dealt with the sexual morality last week. That was a heavy topic, obviously, if, as you've listened to that, because that is so important that we watch out for that part of it, the sanctity of sex. We must protect the sexuality of that and do it God's way. If not, it will absolutely corrupt you and society. Go back and listen to that if you've missed that. 
Now we're going to take a look at the fact that human morality must ultimately rest on the unchanging nature of God. And we must know the nature of God. We must study, that's why we study the Word of God to know who He is. But He sets these boundaries, He sets these regulations for their society that would prove an, an atmosphere that would create an atmosphere of God's love. You want to have a family that is growing in the in love of God, then men and, and, and moms, you must set an atmosphere in your house of the nature of God. It's got to be an agape love, a love that is of God and doing it God's way. Letting your kids just do whatever they want to do, whenever they want to do, and however they want to do, is not godly love. You are bringing chaos and destruction upon your children if you do not set boundaries and regulations within your household. According to God's way. Are you hearing me? You must have those in place or the family unit will come in chaos. Just like the church. The church has boundaries. There's order. There's a way we do things according to the way of God. If we had not, if we say you can do whatever you want to do, whenever you want to do it, however you want to do it, think whatever you want to think, and not, and it goes against the word of God, there would be absolute chaos within a church. We see that played out on live TV today and on the internet if you ever watch some of the crazy things that go on. There's got to be an order. So God here, we're going to see in chapter 19, God giving order to his people so that the nation would be a nation reflecting the nature of God's love. And he is in control and he's going to lay this out. And it starts, remember, as we start each section where you see in Leviticus 19, verse 1, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying... That means there's a transition, there's a new topic at hand, we're going into that, a new subject. And it says here in verse 2, Speak to all the congregation of the children of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. That is as clear of a message as you can be. You want to know what your expectations are? I am the Lord. That means I'm the master, I'm in control. And I am holy, and as children, I expect you to be just like that. You're to be holy. So when people say, I don't know what the will of God is, I am the Lord your God, I am holy, I expect you to be holy. How do you be holy? You seek after, follow him, and he will show you and refine you, because it's what he does. But you have to choose to follow him and, and, and be obedient to the word of God. That is how you become that holy of that transformation. Because the expectation is very clear. God has been set for his people. Because be holy, for I am the Lord your God, am holy. God is separate from man and he is separate from all creations. He is above it all. He rules over all. And God commands his people to be holy. And it applies to it then and it applies to us today. And so if some of you say, well, that's the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? You'll get those exact same words. You'll see it in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. Go back and read for your reading pleasure to why God is saying it was what I told you back then in the Old Testament. And now I'm telling you now in the New Testament. And he tells us today, for us today, be holy for the Lord your God am holy. Now remember, because humans 
are made in the image of God, as a child of God, they can follow His steps and also be holy. There's a tendency of Christians that say, uh, that's God, and of course he's holy, but I'm human, and that, I, the, the expectation, he knows I'm not going to be holy. He knows I'm going to screw up and live my life however, but if the grace of God is going to let me just play however I want to play in life, even if it goes against his nature and against the word of God and disobedience, it's the grace of God, you know. He's, you know, he understands I won't be holy. That is not a biblical mindset. That is not true. That is not accurate. God says be holy. If he told you not to be holy, he wouldn't have told you that, right? He said, be holy. That means you can be holy. You must continue to move in that direction. You can't justify living in sinful life or continue to dabble and act worldly and play worldly and look worldly and all the other things that come with that and just expect that your God, who is a holy God, does not have higher expectations for you as a child of God. As a parent, you should have high expectations for your children. You shouldn't sit there and say, I don't care what you come, turn out to be. Just get out of the house and by 18. Don't come back. That's insanity. That's not the love of God. That should not come out of a loving, God-loving father or mother. It should not happen in a, in a Christian home. And it certainly doesn't say for our Heavenly Father saying to us. But when we understand this, we understand that God calls us to be holy and we can be holy because he's going to do a work in you to reflect and to refine you, then we must understand this and understand that the command of God is, is no longer burdensome to be holy or to, to walk with God. It's not a burdensome. He empowers you and, and, and equips you and does the things he does in your life because he's sovereign to work these things out if you let them. So it's not burdensome. You're, you're going to find yourself wanting to embrace the things, the truths of God in your life. I want more of God. I want to go deeper in my relationship with God. And so these are the things what happens. When you start saying these things to your God, then you realize you're really on track. You'll not say, I want to go deeper with you, Lord. I really want to be refined. I want to, I want to be more like you. You're not going to say that if you want your things of the world. And if you want to live after the flesh, you're going to avoid those little conversations with God. But if you really understand this is a commandment of God, this is not some suggestion, then you will find yourself embracing and wanting to learn and practice the things of God as you uh, learn and study the Word of God. Now the Father wants us to be a blessed people. He wants to bless His people. He wants to bless our families. He wants to bless marriages. He wants to bless our relationships. He wants to bless our occupations, the things that he's called us to do in this society. He just wants us to have the, 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 this, this sense of his joy and, and his peace that's filling your life. And because of that, there's always a someone trying to stop that to happen. And that's called, his name is Satan and his demonic forces. Satan and the darkness, the principalities and the darkness of this world doesn't want you and I to be blessed by God. He doesn't want you to have the joy of God and the peace of God, the happiness that comes with walking with God. So Satan will do whatever he needs to do or send his little minions after you guys and me. And, and, and he's a, we understand the scripture says he's a deceiver. He is a liar. He's going to convince you and I somehow, some way that says following God is boring. 
It is an empty, it's, you're not going to have any fun with everybody else. It's going to be some weird life that you have to live after if you're going to be this holiness that God's is telling you to do. You'll, these little subtle hints of gums is from darkness. There's nothing more complete of joy and peace and happiness than following God and, and allowing him to make you holy and to transform your lives. So you got to stop listening to those little voices that comes into your voice from nowhere or he uses one of his little puppets out there, Satan does, and brings them to you to tell you, oh, you don't want to follow that Christian thing. It's just too boring. You don't have to be that, that radical. Don't be a Jesus freak. It goes on and on, all kinds of things. But that's how Satan works. But understand, holiness leads to joy and happiness. This is an absolute spiritual principle that God wants us to be holy for he is holy. That is an absolute command. And we have to remember as we study chapter 19, God reminds us that we must or he must control our every aspect of our lives. And he shows as he gives his these commands to Moses, to his people, you'll see the different aspects of their, their lives that they need to let God control it. Let's look at in verse 3. The first one we'll see that God must control the home and our time. It says, Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father and keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. So holiness begins at the home. We see that also in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father. That's what God is saying. We are to honor our parents. It's essential for society that we um, honor our parents. It's essential building block for society. It's a healthy aspect of society. It's that brings stability of society. If the younger generation is constantly at odds and constantly um, being disobedient or going, or I should say, disrespectful toward their parents, it will cause a problem within the home and then it will cause all these dysfunctional families a problem within society. And they're raising children who will then go to other children and it will just one generation upon a generation of very disrespectful people. And we see in the end times it doesn't get easier because in the end times one of the key traits that we see when the end times when Jesus comes back for us is that the children will be very disobedient and absolutely will not look at the authority of their parents of having any value. So parents, we, you must be praying now to, for a hedge of protection around your family so that your children do not get swept up and be deceived by the things of this world that's telling them you don't need to listen to the authority of your parents. And that's what's being pumped into your children's heads in so many different ways. And that should not be. Now, you got to note on this because how we feel about our parents has nothing to do with our perception of whether or not they're good parents. It doesn't say you respect and honor your parents because they're, if they're good parents. It doesn't say that. We're supposed to reverence or respect our parents 
it linked to the fact that it, re it respects or lifts up the Lord for doing it. We need to respect our parents because that reverence is linked to how your kids and how you reverence or honor God in your life. Remember, God is so, brings us so simple for us that what he's trying to teach us, he brings it down to the family unit so that when these kids come up, it's his children. And you as parents are to, to show and teach them the ways of the Lord so that they will learn to respect and honor you as parents. Then that respect and that honor, that, that reverence will go right up to the heavenly father as they get older and they understand these things. Submitting to parental authority is a step to submitting to divine authority. So if you allow your children not to be um, submissive and understand submissive and teaching them to be submissive to you because you are the parent, then you're causing them not to be, you're going to have a hindrance for them to come and submit to the divine authority of God. So letting that philosophy out there that's, I think it's from, from Satan himself, that says, let your kids discover however they want to discover. Let them learn as they go, and they're going to make mistakes. That's how they learn. And just let them float around and whatever they feel like. Woo, I'm so sorry for you as parents. Because you're going to have chaos, and you're going to watch your kids not have divine respect for authority and other things. It's just only a matter of time. And it saddens me to watch it play out because you can see it playing out as they get older and older as kids. It's also not only are you supposed to let God control the home, but you're also to allow him to control our time. And he uses keep my Sabbaths. It, notice it's not your Sabbath. It's his Sabbaths. He wants to spend time with you. It's his time. It's not your time. You don't get to determine what you're going to do with your time. I don't feel like doing that. No, it's his time. He wants time with you. He wants to talk to you. He wants to spend time hearing from you. He wants time with you. This Sabbath is to make you whole, to make you have a balanced life. God knows you have to set time aside to devote special times to the Lord in time of worship and in time of service. You and I must set those times aside. And yes, they're referring to one day a week here in this response. But when, you're, when the presence of God is with you, he's inside you. The fact that you're, uh, you're sealed and, and with the spirit of God, he wants you to find rest in him every day. He wants you to spend time with him every day and throughout the day. That's why he says in the scriptures we are to pray without ceasing. We're to have that. But truly, I believe there is a Sabbath day, one day a week, where he says, you've got to rest the body. You've got to rest the mind. You have to slow it down. You need to make sure you're, all the distractions are wasted. You, you and I can have time to talk about the things I want to talk to you about. And you must find that in. It's not just a Sunday. It's not just a Saturday. It's not just a Monday. Whatever that day is that you must find where you're slowing things down to allow your body. Or you'll wear out. If you work seven days a week and you're just cranking because you're trying to make money and you're just go, 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 go. You're going to go. You're going to fall apart. 
mentally, physically, spiritually, you're going to fall apart. So he had to put boundaries on his people and say, it's, keep my Sabbaths. I, these are my days, he says, and I want you to make that. How important it is that we study and meditate on his word, Psalm 1-2. But his delight is, on, is, in the Lord of the, is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. May that be us in regards to our life and how we spend our time. And it's also how important it is that we recognize that all of our time belongs to God. All of our time. And we must not waste his time. That's Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 17. Now in verse 4, we see that he's going to address the the issue about idolatry and put some boundaries around idolatry for his people. And it says, do not turn to idols, nor make for yourselves molded gods. I am the Lord your God. I am the master. This is not negotiable. You cannot be worshiping idols, and nor do you go figure out, I'm going to go create my own little model and little molded God and make my life the way I want to make it. That You don't have that control. God has that control. He is your Lord and master. And once you get over that whole thing, I can control whatever I want to do, wherever I want to go, it will make your life as a Christian so much more joyful, so much more at peace and happy when you just let go and let him literally be your God. The word idols here means nothings. Idols, these idols that they would worship means nothings. These idols represent gods that do not, are not real, that don't exist. And how many times people bow their, their knee to something or someone thinking that they're everything and they become nothing. It's just fleeting moments, a passing moment. And you left empty because you put your trust in the idol. Whatever idol that may be. Or you think you're really smart. You think you're really good and you've got this all dialed in, you know. So you think you can just turn around and create your own molded images and your own molded gods. See, as we know, as we study the scriptures, Israel had a major problem with molded gods, didn't they? Because Israel had a significant problem with worshiping of idols until the Babylonian captivity, some 800 years from the time of Leviticus. Major problem. Creating their own molded gods. And the question is, is what is it that they were worshiping? What represented those idols that they were worshiping or created? Do you know? It's nothing new under the sun. It's the same thing today. They created images for experience. I'm going to create an idol so I can experience something. I'm going to create this, this thing that's going to give me an experience that makes me feel good. Or makes me happy. Or it could be I'm going to create and worship some idol because I want the financial success. Or I'll create or worship that idol that gives me pleasure. 
or I'm going to create or find something that I can bow down to that someone else made that allows me to bring self-worship. Whatever it may be, God's telling his people that needs to end. That needs to stop. Everyone around you is doing it, but you do not do it. I have boundaries on that. It's a commandment. Don't do it. It's going to hurt you. People still do it today. Whatever they attempt to mold in, in a molded God or some image, in, it's always in their image. It's in their image in order to justify their own behavior. It's okay, you don't understand. That's my, that's my little thing that I do because it makes me feel good and it makes me this and that. And that's mine and I've created that little reality thinking it's true. Because it helps me justify why I'm doing something that may be completely against the word of God. God didn't say you could have that. God didn't say you could do that. I didn't say you could be like that. But people will do it and say, who are you? Because this is my life. And I've created my own little, perfect little world. And it happens still today. And then what happens is that idol will fade away and it will leave you empty. It will come against you and kick you out. He goes on in verses 5 through 8 and he says to his people that I'm in control of your worship. Or your fellowship. And he says it very clearly. And if you offer a sacrifice of a peace offering to the Lord, you shall offer it of your own free will. Right from the very beginning, he says it's your free will. I don't force you to do anything. I'm just saying here's the boundaries. Here's what's the expectations. But you must freely come and do it. I'm not going to force you to do it. Verse 6, and it shall be eaten the same day you offer it. So when they bring that peace offering, they're going to bring that animal. They're going to get it to, 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 to come to the uh, tabernacle. They're going to have it. It's going to get killed. It's going to be right there. And when you bring that peace offering, he says, and on the next day, he's going to give you guidelines, boundaries. You bring the peace offering, you get to have the food, you get to eat it, and the next day you get to have some more if there's any left over. And if any remains until the third day, it shall be burned in the fire. So you get to have it when it's freshly sacrificed, it's a peace offering. You get to have leftovers on the second day, love leftovers, still good leftovers. But when it goes to the third day, God says, absolutely not, you can't touch it. It has to be consumed by fire, it's got to be gone away. Don't touch it. Don't eat it. Verse 7. And if it, is, if it is eaten at all on the third day, it's in a what? It's an abomination. That's a strong word. You know that. That's a, one of those words that says, absolutely not. You're insane. You're crazy. What are you doing? It shall not be accepted. Verse 8, therefore, transitional word, everyone who eats it shall bear his iniquity. Your responsibility, it's the weight's going to be on you and how you're going to do this. You're taking full responsibility of this here. Can't shift the blame. 
the full weight's on you on how you're going to do that because he has profaned or violate the hallowed or sacred offering of the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from his people. Woo! I wasn't messing around here. It was clear cut. You think, you think God's going to let me go on this one? Do you think he'll let me slide? Do you think I can talk him out of this? Yeah, you know, I'm sure I can talk dad out of that. If not dad, I'll find someone else to kind of represent. and tell. I'll go to the, maybe Moses can talk me out. God made it very clear. Peace offering, you can have it. It's a beautiful thing. Great, God designed. It's, you lifted it up. It's a form of worship. You can have leftovers. But if you think you're going to have the thirds and not get rid of it the way God said, and you just go, well, it's just a little bite. It's just a little thing. No big deal, right? It's an abomination. You'll be cut off. That's what God said. You'll be cut off. So there's absolutely tremendous importance of understanding that God wants us in this fellowship with God, that there's, a, there's this, this there's this peace offering, it signifies, and remember when we studied it, that it was an enjoyment of the peace with God and the fellowship with God. That's what the peace offering was. And it was always to be made by one's own free will. They had to freely come with that sacrifice. And God did not want any coercion or anyone being forced, fellowship or in this peace offering in whatsoever with his people of Israel. He wanted his people to freely come to him with that peace offering. Nor did God want stale worship with the people of Israel. The meat of the peace offering was considered no good after two days. You can't just give third leftover kind of deal and think God says, oh, you're going to give me scraps, you're going to give me the leftovers, you're going to get things that's already turning, kind of rancid because it's three days old, and you think that's what you want to worship to God? It's also, God says, I don't want you to just nibble. I don't want you to do this nibbling of Christianity. I'll do a little Christianity here, a little Christianity there, and that, that's enough worship, that's enough fellowship with God, just a little nibble. God didn't want you just to have a little bit of a nibble, in the, a nibble of God's presence in your life. He wanted you and I to dive into this peace offering. Consume the peace offering. If you can't finish and get your, if you had your full on day one, if there's any left on day two, you can have another fill with that. But that's it. You had to have a full, filled, complete satisfaction with God. That's what he wants us to have in regards to fellowship and worship with him. Then he moves on to verses 9 and 10 and he shows that God must control our work or our labor that God's called us to do. Notice here. When you reap the harvest of your land and you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest and you shall not glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather every grape of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the stranger. I am the Lord your God. Again, 
This is a commandment. This is not optional. This is not maybe once in a while. And maybe if I feel, feel generous, I may give something to the Lord if I feel generous on that day when I spend time in his presence. No. He says to those who work, those who are working the land and has fruit, has substance, life that brings life to people because the grapes and, the, and all the wheat and all these things. He says, as it comes time to harvest, this is the expectation. This is the, this is the public assistant program for Israel, for his people. This is the welfare program. This is the public assistant program. This is what you're going to do, farmers. You're going to go and you're going to cut around, but as you're doing nice big circles on the land as a farmer, you're not going to cut the corners. Let them be. So when the people who are poor can come with dignity and to go do something for themselves to have as part of dignity, not just a free handout where they just expect it. No, they need to go do the work to go to the corners pluck what they need, get what they need from the grain, from the whatever the corn, whatever they're growing. From the vineyards, they weren't to, the vineyards weren't to sit there and take all the grapes and say, get all the loose grapes because this is really precious stuff. No, let it all lay right there because people who are poor or strangers passing through, they need food. They didn't have restaurants. They didn't just sit there and go, oh, sweetheart, what do you want to eat? I don't know. What do you want to eat? They were never having those conversations between husband and wife. They said, what field has some gleaning that's available to us as we're traveling so that we can be fed? They say, calculated, it would be about a 15% of the gross uh, product of what they produce is left behind for the people who are poor are those who are strangers passing through. That was the, uh, the Israel assistant program for those in need. That's how God designed it. We, if you know Ruth chapter 2 verses 2 and 3, that's exactly what Ruth was doing in Boaz's property and land. That's when Boaz noticed her while she was gleaning uh, in, in need of food. It's so important. Whatever God's called you to do in your job, your work, your labor, we should think of others as we enjoy what God has given us. What God has given us, we must find the joy in the fact that we can give to someone else that is in need. If he is Lord in our work, in our labor, at the job he has given you, we cannot be selfish and keep it only for ourselves and only do it for ourselves. We must be willingly, freely give to those in need. In verse 13, 11 through 13 here of Leviticus 19, we see that God must control our business. What we do in doing business with people, how we negotiate. Look at what happens. He says, you shall not steal nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely, nor shall you profane, or to make it common, the name of, our, of, your, of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not cheat your neighbors, nor rob him. The wages of him who is hired shall not remain with you all night until morning. 
So God says to promote this harmonious harmony, this unity, this holiness between the Israelites, they had boundaries and guidelines of what God's expectations. And clearly, when you're working with people, you are not to steal, you're not to lie, you're not to take advantage of people, you're not to rob them, they're not... Any of these things that he's talking about here, you're not sitting there, oh, I swear that God is telling, I'm telling you the truth. I'll be there. I'll do the work like I told you I would do. I promise. Swear to God. Don't do it. Don't do it. God says, don't be, don't be doing that. Well, you know, we're Christians. Of course we're going to do it. You know, hey, we're Christians. We're brothers. Of course, you know, you'll let us slide, right? No. Uh, it's not how it's, God says it's going to be. No, it doesn't. Your yes will be your yes. Your no will be your no. And if you hired somebody, you better, as a boss, better not be sitting there, oh, man, you've done a great job. We were so fruitful from this, profitable. Oh, this is great. Hey, I'll see you tomorrow. God says, no, you will pay the man now before the end, before the day's end. You don't get to take all the profit and go home, and then the man goes home and has nothing for his family. You pay them at the end of the day. There's no promise down tomorrow or the next day. Why? Because they understood there may not be enough for the next day. We always automatically assume, hey, you work all week. We might pay you two weeks and you may pay you. Or you might work a whole month and the job may pay you. And you trust that there's going to be money for that company that's going to pay you. That's not how God designed it. He says, you man works today, he gets paid today. You understand? If he doesn't show up tomorrow, guess what? He doesn't get paid. So you work, get paid. You work, get paid. You don't work, you don't get paid. It's a pretty simple concept. And that kept harmony and it kept a oneness and unity in the society of the Israelites. No one was trying to take advantage of someone else and ciphering money off or what they could get from someone else. They had to work. And that's why societies were unity because they knew they had to work together to make this work and they could not take advantage. Verse 14. God must be in control of our relationships with our neighbors. You shall, verse 14. You shall not curse the deaf nor put a stumbling block before the blind but shall fear your God, I am the Lord. So God right up here up front says that it commands the people of Israel to you are not allowed in absolutely in any way mistreat the disabled. Absolutely cannot. Cursing the deaf is cruel because they can't hear you curse them out. They're deaf. To put a stumbling block before the blind, absolute wickedness, mean, mean heart. Never to happen. And it just it reveals the heart of a society and of people of how humane they are. What what one's heart is like. When they, when they go against the innocent baby that cannot defend themselves. Or someone who is blind or deaf and unable, they're disabled, and people take advantage. God sees all of that. God sees all of that. 
And he's telling his people, that will never happen in your relationships. You will never treat someone different because of their disability. But it does tell you a lot about a person who looks down at people who have disabilities or sinks babies in the womb or just born, have no value. Clear indication of the heart of that person. Verse 15. You shall not do injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor honor the person of the, of the mighty. In righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go about as a talebearer among your people, nor shall you take a stand against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. So right up front here, the, the, these were primary instructions to judges that were judging the people, judges and magistrates, the governors, the mayors of the world, right, of the land, giving them very clear principles of how they are to judge other people, to make legal decisions among the people. And it's even important even today. Every relationship that they're there, if they're a judge, they're a magistrate, they're a mayor, they're a, whatever position that God is allowed to be to rightly judge and the righteousness and to watch and make sure people are working and living to harmoniously here, it has to be justice and it has to be trustworthy. It's got to be truthfulness in the system. He's going to say, better be telling the truth, judge. You better not be taking advantage. You better be justice. You better These things God sees and telling Moses to tell the people, that is absolutely critical for a society, that you can trust the judges or society will fall apart. You have to trust the governors and the mayors, the magistrates of the society. If you can't, society will fall apart. And it will see it, and we're seeing it playing out even today. Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, Jesus made a very clear, uh, clear update message to us in the New Testament. Jesus reminds us that what this principle is all about, right, that we're spoken of here in Leviticus. We should only judge others with the standard we are willing to be judged by because God will apply the exact same standard to us. You're about to judge someone. Be very careful how you're going to judge. Because you better be doing it God's way. If you don't and you're having your own standard of judgment, God is going to hold that standard you hold to that person will hold against you. Be very careful. And he also says, one of the things, key things in society or any relationships as a, as, as a gathering, a talebearer, that you should not go about as a talebearer among your people. That cannot happen. Why? Because a talebearer is essentially a gossiper. It's someone who cannot mind their own business. Notice that in 1 Thessalonians 4.11 when we studied that. It's someone who delights going around and discussing the lives of other people and spreading stories around. That cannot happen within a society or even the, in the camp. God says that cannot happen. Don't be going over to one tribe, getting the stories. What's going on in your tribe over here? Oh, 
I'll be back. And then you go to the next, you know, the next uh, to Reuben's camp. And then that one. Hey, Reuben, you won't believe what's happening in Dan's. And you will. Oh, let me go tell Simeon. And you're going around to all the tribes telling everyone what's going on. God said, that can't happen. That can't happen. And that shouldn't happen today. From church to church. House to house. Person to person. If God's speaking to you today, you're a talebearer, repent and stop. Verse 17. The command to love, one, one, to love one's neighbor, right here. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. The next commandment is very clear. Love for one's brother is commanded. You're to love your brother. You're to love your sister. Not only in action, but also really truly from your heart. Your actions and your words should be a reflection of the heart. Yet if it's not present in the heart, then it should not be in, it should, will not come out in one's actions because the heart follows, right? So if you're trying to love the person, it's hard for them to love them, you need to take the necessary steps and prayer and continue to seek the Lord. Give me a love for this person. Give me a love for this person. Give me a love. Let me show me acts of kindness to this person. What can I do, Lord? Because I want my heart right with that brother, that sister, because that is what you've commanded me to do. We should not be content to treat others well and have a heart of hatred towards them. That's hypocrisy. Oh, my brother, I love you, man. Love you, love you. And inside, you absolutely despise even being around the man. That is hypocrisy. That is hatred. That needs to be repentant of, and you must surrender that. You must change. That's not acceptable in God's eyes. God will deal with it, and the heavy hand of God will be upon you, and you will feel the pressure of God's hand to correct you if you're that's speaking. Uh, to you. God desires to change our hearts to love that person, to have the right heart and actions line up. And you shall surely rebuke. Love will rebuke another person, correct another person when it is necessary. We all have blind spots. We all have areas in our lives that are still the Lord's working on and we're, and we're not perfect. And then sometimes those, un those blemishes and things come up that affect people and someone has going to come along lovingly because they love you to warn you that your actions and your behaviors and your attitude and your stinking thinking is going to bring problems for you. I just want you to know what the Word of God says so you understand that. What can I do to pray for you and help you? But there are blind spots that people, everyone has, where they, we think everything is fine in our lives, but it is evident to others just how much we are in the flesh when it comes to that subject matter. And it's also love when you shall not take vengeance. 
Vengeance belongs to God, Romans 12, 19. Remember that. There is a sense in which we can hold back God's vengeance or hold back God's work of vengeance or corrections and change in that person's life by getting involved and us bringing the vengeance. Did you understand that? Here's a situation and you want to have vengeance. You want to get back for this guy, what he just wickedly did to you. But you hold back because you say, God, you'll deal with him. Let God deal with him in his time. You let go. Do not have a grudge or bitterness or resentment build up. You've got to let it go and give it to God or you're going to be harmed by it. But the challenge comes is you want to have vengeance. You want to pay them back. It's like, but you could be getting in the way of what God's going to do to bring the vengeance of change. You just literally have to trust God. He's in control of these situations. So when you're sitting there and someone's just peppering you and just tearing you apart and saying all these things are just not true, it's not easy to sit and take it and to listen to it. When you know it's not right, it's not true, it's not good, you've been trying to do whatever. I can remember a couple back in California calling me. Kathleen, I come, save our marriage. Oh, it's terrible, blah, 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 blah. And we get out, it's late, it's late, it's not convenient at all. And we want to go help them, we want to help them, we want them to know that God can heal their marriage. And this is not just one time. It happens all the time. You sit there and you pour into them and you guide them and you show them what the word of God is and then they turn on you. <laughs> they literally turn on you and they leave the church. You just went out of the, you know, you're like, what is going on, God? But you, again, you don't need vengeance. You don't need to go back and see, you just listen to all this junk coming at you and you say nothing. Why? Because God will deal with the person. You know you stand right in God. God's, you know what you're doing was right and good. Even though they're tearing you apart. You let God deal with them. You don't have to have vengeance. Vengeance is of God. He will deal with the situation. And you stay right. God exercises his vengeance through the rightful use of government authority. Romans 13, verses 1 through 7. It is absolutely appropriate to both personally forgive the crime that comes against you and then also testify against them in court. Let me say that one more time. If someone did a crime against you, it broke the law. You are in the right standing of God to go and testify in the court because they broke the law. But at the same time, you are going to forgive the person for being, doing the, the crime against you. You're not going to have bitterness. You're not going to have resentment. You're not going to go, I can't wait to get to court and I'm just going to... No, you just tell them the facts. You let the court system do what they're going to do based on the crime. You don't need to have vengeance. 
Why? Because if there's a grudge, it's going to cause a problem within your own. It will deteriorate you and it will cause some problems. And how can you shall love your neighbor as yourself? We see that is this is the second great commandment. We see that noted in Mark chapter 12, verse 31. Many times people are surprised to hear or to see in Leviticus, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You say, yes, I see that in the New Testament. I see it clearly in Mark 12, 31. But do you notice God is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. He says it right here, the same standard that he's told his people, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But the problem is, even then and still today, people have a very narrow view of who their neighbor is. They think their neighbors are only their friends and family and countrymen. Not strangers, not foreigners, not fill in the blank. It's just only my little circle, that, those are the ones I'm going to love. No, that's not what the scripture says. Jesus commanded us to love even your enemies. We saw that in Luke chapter 6, verse 27. You're also even the traditional enemy or even those in need. You are so to, to show love. We see that in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. God commands his people then and today that we are to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, what that doesn't say, it doesn't say that you must first have to learn how to love yourself before you can love your neighbor. That's not biblical. It means that in the same way we would take care of ourselves and be concerned about our own interests, we will apply those same level of concern for those around us. That's what it means to love others. We love ourselves for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it, Ephesians 5.29. And that's why when people say, oh, I have to learn to love myself, the scripture says you automatically think about yourself way too much already as, as it is. You already look for your own flesh to comfort your flesh and nourish your flesh and cherish it. That is part of your nature. But we see a warning, do we not, in the scripture? 2 Timothy 3.2 Paul warned us that in the last days men will be lovers of themselves. This is not a positive thing. Do you know that? People at the end times are going to get to such a point that they're going to love themselves and we could care less what anyone else is happening to them. Do you see a little bit of a sign of that going on today? Just a little bit. Verse 19, you shall keep your statutes, you shall not let your livestock breed with another kind, you shall not sow your uh, field and with mixed seed, nor shall a garment with mixed linen or wool come upon you. So here in these three different examples, don't mix animals and breeding, don't mix the soils and seeds into the soil, do not mix the garments with linen and so do not be mixing things up. 
God has an order. God has a purpose. Paul reflects this in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What, does, what do you have in common as those who are in the light and then those who are in darkness? There's, a, there's an order. There's a boundaries that God set because it's good and it's right. Even Matthew 13, where we see seed is a picture of the word. There are those who think you can explore other forms of theology. I love studying religions, and I love the, all the different religions, and I, I love this little bit of this religion, and this little bit of religion, and this, and I, I create my own little God moment here, my a molded idol, and I love mixing these different religions, and it makes me feel good, and I like these how these all do it, and that's not, God says you can't do that. The word of God stands alone. You cannot go get other teachings and other theologies and other religions and add it to the, the scripture. You can't add it from the scripture. You can't delete from the scripture. You cannot mix these things. God forbids that. Let me make it clear to you. God forbids us mixing religions into one, create your own little mix of religion. And how many people have you met that way? And they're confused. And they have uncertainty. And they'll just spiral out of control. And I'll give you one key thing about this. In modern age today. We must keep important distinctions. Because if you do not keep important distinctions of how God sees things, things get very blurry, very confusing, and very twisted. When it comes to genders, God has clear distinction, male and female. When you see a society mixing them and blending them, and it's creating great... Tremendous confusion and tremendous uncertainty in a society. You as a Christian, knowing the word of God and knowing the truths of God, he makes it clear that we cannot blur the distinctions between genders. We cannot, we must resist as Christians. That cannot happen. Are you understanding with me? Because God says in these verses, just 19 alone, he's making it clear. Do not be mixing things that are not to be mixed. It causes confusion. Verse 20. Whoever lies carnally with a woman who is betrothed to a man as a concubine or who has not uh, at all been redeemed nor given her freedom for this, there shall be uh, scourging, but there shall not be Put to, but they shall not be put to death because she was not free. She's still in a slave position as where, she's, where she stands right now. And, she, and he shall bring his trespass offering to the Lord to the door of the tabernacle of meeting and a ram as a trespass offering. The priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the trespass offering before the Lord for his sin which he has committed. And the sin which he has committed shall be 
forgiven him. So we have a situation here. A guy lays with this woman who is considered a slave at this point in time, but she's about to get married to a free man. She was just about to get married. He sleeps with her. Technically, that should have been a death, but because she was a slave position at that point, he's not put to death. They're not put to, get to death as together, but he has to come and make it right with God. He has to bring the, peace, the, the, the offering to the, to the priest, to the tabernacle, to make that right. And there's going to be paying back to the man who this woman was to marry, or this man who was to marry this woman. He's going to have to pay uh, the, the dad or the, the man off for doing what he did and, and God's making to make sure it's right. We see in verse 23, when you come into the land and have uh, planted all kinds of trees for food, then you shall count their fruit as uncircumcised. Three years it shall be as uncircumcised to you and it shall not be eaten. But on the fourth year, all its fruit shall be holy, a praise to the Lord. The fourth, the fourth gleaning, the fourth harvesting, all goes to the Lord. And then we see in verse 25, And in the fifth year you may eat its fruit, that it may yield to you its increase. I am the Lord your God. So God reminded the Israelites of their ultimate goal. And that is the promised land, the land of Canaan, must become fruitful. And God knew that the first three harvests, those were to not be eaten. Allow that to replenish the land and let it give a chance to grow. Because if you strip it bare those first three years, there's no more fruit will be coming back. The fourth year, when it is plentiful, it's not just a few, you know, it's like my strawberry plants. When you put the strawberry plant in, I might get a little sign of it, but I'm not supposed to touch it. You really shouldn't touch those. The second year, you'll see a little bit more, but by the third year, you've got really big strawberries, right? It's, it's fruitful. It's starting to multiply in the plants. God says the fourth year, that plentiful, it's all mine. It's my fruit. It's my doing of why you have it. And then the fifth year, it's healthy trees, multiplied, it's fruitful, it's spreading across the land. You can partake of it. It teaches you delayed gratification, does it not? It teaches you patience because God knows what's best. And ecology, surrounding ecology, he understands God says it needed to happen. And then we'll close up here in verse 26 through 31. You shall not eat anything with blood, nor shall you practice divination or soothsaying. No magic stuff, no no, in this black magic, all kinds of junk that goes on these days, but not to touch it. You shall not shave, your, shave around the sides of your head. That's interesting. In that culture, that was not a good sign. Nor shall you disfigure the edges of your beard. You shall, you shall not make any cuttings in your flesh for the dead. Don't be sitting there, oh, my, 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 my relative died and you're cutting because you're grieving. That, that is not supposed to happen nor tattoo any marks on you. I am the Lord. The Lord says, don't be grieving this way and cutting yourselves and tattooing the person's name on you because you're grieving of the dead and you want to remind yourself of the dead. That's, those things were not to take place in 
this society, this culture. You're not to just cut your hair ever you want to. Why? Because it leads to people to see in that culture that you, and we will find out, you know, historically and everything, the pagans worshipped by cutting their hair a certain way and doing things to the beards and tattooing themselves and, and uh, cutting themselves. It was pagan worshipping. And God says, clearly make sure my people don't act like the pagan world who just want to def- reflect this stuff on their flesh and do the things of their flesh and cut their hair a certain way. They're not to be even look like and act like the people of the pagan customs. That should not happen. And it cannot happen. So he put a very strong boundary on that because once you start seeing those things that met in that culture, that they're worshiping into the divination, the darkness and principalities and darkness of the world. It opens up portals to a dimension that we talked about on Sunday, a dimension that you do not see, and it's dark when it comes to uh, Satan and his demonic forces. Now, in regards to us today, Part of the message that we have to understand is what our culture thinks and how they perceive these things are very important. If some clothing or jewelry or body decoration would associate ourselves with a pagan world, we should not be doing it. Now, I know that's difficult, kind of a line to draw. Because standards of culture always are changing. I mean, can you imagine? People, men do not cut their hair on the sides. <laughs> but women were not to do that. Why? Because the temple prostitutes, that's what they used to do. Really short hair shaved on the sides. It was an outward appearance that people knew that's who they were and what they did. And they wanted that attention. They wanted people to know that they were uh, a temple prostitute. It was a form of religion for the pagan world to sleep with people in the church there or their temple. Paul warns in the city of Corinth that these head coverings or going around as a, uh, should say, as a prostitute in the, in the temple prostitute, they walked around without head coverings. And so people today think because you're coming to church, you must put some kind of covering over your hair because the scripture says you must cover your hair, women. But understand in the culture of that day why they asked the women to cover their hair is because they did not want their women to be identified with the pagan women who were prostitutes in the temple. And it was a worldly pagan world. That is the only place in the scripture that talks about women putting a veil or something over their head. It's the only place. But it was for that culture. It's not for today. You can go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 5 and 6, and read more out about that. But one of the things is these mediums, these these, these spirits, these false spirits that were, they were going about, these pagans were seeking after the dead spirits and, and going all kinds, and it opened up the doorways for the occults. And you got to, God said, that's strictly forbidden. Don't touchy any of it. You shall rise before the gray-headed and honor the presence of an old man. Fear your God, I am the Lord, 
And if a stranger dwells with you in your land, you shall not mistreat him. The stranger who dwells among you shall be to you as one born among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. You shall not, you shall not do you shall do no injustice in judgment and measurement of length and weight or volume. You shall have honest scales, honest weights, and honest ephah, and have honest hen. I am the Lord your God, you who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe all my statutes and all of my judgments and perform them. I am the Lord. Fifteen times we see in this chapter, I am the Lord, I am the Lord, I am the Lord. Fifteen times it is as clear as can be. These are commandments. These are not suggestions. These are truths. These are good. This is right for his, that, the Israelites, for the society. And they're right and good for us this day. Why? Because the law and love of God.